0: And the name, which is above that the name of Jesus, Father, Father, is So we've been studying the book of Philippians, and one of the things we've been looking at is this idea of indestructible joy. And what that means is there's a joy out there that's not dependent on happiness spikes, it's not dependent on circumstance or human emotion or, or some of the expectations we had in our life, but it comes from a deep and abiding sense that Christ dwells in us, and that changes everything. We understand that our lives matter, that there's something we have to walk out. One of the beautiful things about becoming a Christian is you now have a sense of purpose. There's something God has for me. And what God has for all of us is he wants us to flourish. One old saint said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And did you ever have that time where you just feel comfortable in your skin? You look around and you say, oh my gosh, life didn't make sense for most of the time, but now I get it. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I serve. I feel like I fulfill my gifts and my callings. And that flourishing is so important. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15 when he said, these words I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Now this is a little odd because Isaiah said concerning Jesus, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. In fact, had we looked on him outwardly, there was nothing about him we would desire. And yet Jesus said that he was going to give us that joy. And of course, that joy came from knowing that he was obeying the call of the Father. He said, I only do the things the Father tells me to do. And for the joy that was beset him, he endured the shame, the suffering, because he saw you and I, he saw the cross as a way of our deliverance, and Jesus drew from the wells of salvation. So there is a God who walks alongside of us. Mountain experiences, the valley, uh, the things we face—there is a God who comes alongside. Now, now here's the thing: we have to be honest about right. Sometimes as Christians, we're not honest. We have a lack of authenticity. We read a scripture like, uh, "My joy might be in you, and your joy might be full." And we're not honest enough to say, you know, Jesus said I should have the abundant life and I should have this joy, so how come I feel joyless most of the time? Now, Here's what I've learned in all the years of walking with God. If the Bible says something about a condition or something I should be walking in and I'm not experiencing it, who do you think I figured out the problem? Whose end is it on? Yeah, it's on my end, Right. It's not on God's end. I I love the scriptures. I believe them. So so there's something in me. There's something clogging the system. You know, at salvation, God did amazing things, right? You know, this incorruptible. We were born again of of incorruptible seed. This corruption was changed, a new spirit. But one of the things God did not change is our mind. Scripture says mind has to be, be renewed. Day by day, the washing of the water of the word. Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to live a different life by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll prove out what is the acceptable will of God. So what we find is, you know, God didn't put a pump in our heart that secretes joy 24-7, okay? But what he gave us was a path to indestructible joy. And it begins in verse 5, where Paul says that you can have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And this is what allowed Paul, in a prison cell, to be joyful. He had the mind of Christ. His mind was transformed. It was renewed. And what is the mind of Christ? And and this is interesting. Um, There was a book out called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And the first sentence says the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. And the reason is we think the mind fights the spirit, right? We think we want to be spirit led. We want to move in the gifts of the spirit. And we think, oh my gosh, if we talk about the mind, it's going to lead to dead orthodoxy. And that's not what we want. We want to be alive in the spirit. But it says here the mind is crucial. We have the mind of Christ. And what was the mind of Christ? We just read it in these verses that Jesus, though he was God, did not look at that situation, but humbled himself, became a man, and was obedient even to death on the cross. Now, that opens up one of the lofty doctrines of the church called the incarnation, where God became man. Unique to Christianity, one of the foundations of our faith. The tragedy is we only talk about it at Christmas, right? You get the Christmas card in the mail, the babe. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, the quote from Isaiah unto us, a son is born. And we think that's wonderful. And we never, pardon the pun, flesh out what that really means. Now, certainly we understand at Christmas it means Jesus came in the flesh so he would die and we would live, right? When man sinned, God covered him by slaying an animal. And then to set up a type, he asked Abraham to slay his only son, the son that he loves. Genesis 22. And you know the story, Abraham is stopped by the angel and God said he would provide himself as a sacrifice. And the whole Old Testament points to Calvary. Jesus, born in the fullness of time, suffered and died. And that's wonderful and it's beautiful, but there's more to the incarnation. There's a reason why this doctrine is is so broad because it teaches us a way to live. And Paul's telling the Philippians that if you had that mind, your church would flourish. Your lives would flourish. There would be no infighting, no ambition, no striving. You would be the church God wants you to be. Now this mindset that Jesus had... The mystery of godliness that he was willing to become a man, this humility, fights against everything you and I know in our culture. Now, if you've been around, you've seen me do this before, this is my ladder, and uh, I use it as a prop because it is a great illustration, because from the time we were born, at least first grade, you and I were taught that if we climb this ladder rung by rung, that we will be a success. And success in our culture is God, right? 2016, you know, our God in America is success. And in the beginning, we're told we have to climb the ladder, learn our ABCs, learn how to function, go to school. But somewhere around high school, we're taught that we can climb over others. We can get a better SAT score, get into better colleges, beat people out for jobs. And that we're taught one day if we climb high enough, we can get to the top. And that's where all the goodies are. Uh, Look up on the screen with me. This is a people power rating, and it lists the top 10 people in a power rating. It's not just money. It's IQ, EQ, celebrity, influence, everything wrapped in, in one package, and Floyd Merriweather made $300 million last year. You see people like Katy Perry and Howard Stern, Garth Brooks, Bill Gates, number eight, makes $11 billion a year. If Bill Gates drops a dollar in the ground, he doesn't bend up to pick it up because he makes more than that in one second. That's how rich he is. So we look at this list and we think, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. But, but these people have climbed the ladder of success. They've gotten to the top. The question is, are they happy? Are they filled with joy? I don't know these people. But I read the tabloids. And I read about famous people all the time who sedate themselves with pills and alcohol and illicit sex. They fall into depression. Some of them commit suicides. We read it every year at the end of the year. The tragedy of these young people who died all climbing the ladder of success. And then you know what Paul tells us? Jesus did something different. He climbed down the ladder. He was God. He was at the top of the rung. And then he came all the way down as a man. And then he was born in the straw poverty. And then he had nowhere to lay his head. And then he came down to the final rung. He died on a cross. And the beauty of Jesus Christ as we preach, and we should never be ashamed of the gospel, is no one's lower than him. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was poor. He lived in occupied territory. No one's lower than Jesus. And in his humility, he descended into greatness. That's what Paul's saying. The mind of Christ, and the mind is more than just thinking. The mind is our strategy, it's our worldview, it's our approach to life. And Jesus' mind was that he would descend into greatness. Now, there's a paradox here. Uh, Andy Crouch was here and had lunch with me Thursday. I toured him around our facility. He loves what we're doing here. He's going to do Sizzling Summer 2017, Calvary Campus. And uh, he's just written a book called The Paradox of Flourishing. And because I was in in this text, we started to share with one another. And and we said, okay, if if flourishing is a human fully alive, then the paradox of this is that somehow we still have to walk in our authority. We have to walk in our calling. So the idea is that Jesus flourished. No one would argue that, right? He healed, he preached, he taught uh, his fame. He's still the greatest human being that ever lived. Paul flourished, three missionary journeys, started churches all around the world. But Jesus, who, who came from heaven to a manger to a cross, how did he descend into greatness? Did he just become a doormat? Did he just relinquish all his rights? No, here's the paradox. The paradox is that Jesus understood authority. Paul understood authority. He understood his calling. Almost every letter opens by him saying, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He talks about spiritual gifts. We should know our gifts. We should move in them. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus Taught with great authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, yet he would take a whip of cords and cleanse the temple. He would stand up to her and go tell that fox. He would pay his taxes. The paradox is he would wash his disciples' feet, take children upon his lap. So Andy Crouch argues that we as Christians need to be strong and weak. Strong in what we believe, bold in the gospel, strong in what God's called us to do, but weak in our approach. Andy calls it downward mobility. Downward mobility is to use one's privilege and power, your status and your rank in society, as an opportunity to serve the materially and spiritually poor. In other words, you don't take your rank, your power, You know, your index rating, if you were on that list, to lord it over others, but downward mobility as you begin to take that and to empower others. That's what Jesus did. When I think of this, I think of Blake McCoskey, an entrepreneur. He started some 35 companies. None of them ever took off until he came up with this idea of Tom's Shoes. Many of you may have heard it. Some of you may wear them. And Tom's Shoes is the idea for every shoe they sell in America. They give one to a kid in an underdeveloped country. Blake says the greatest days of, of his life are when he goes to a foreign country and does a shoe drop and sees the smile on those children's faces. And uh, his business model was was tough, to be honest. And it wasn't until AT&T came along and did that commercial where he really became viable financially and soared, and he's going on to do some greater things, and I think, well, there's a man who took money and power through capitalism and the freedoms of our country and used it to serve the most underprivileged. And we could go down the list of so many others, so many great saints through the centuries who had this mind of Christ the incarnation. He became a man, but not only did Jesus become a man, he became a bond servant, a slave. Now, everywhere in the New Testament, you see the word servant. The word is slave. The translators had a hard time putting slave because of the conditions of the time. And, And slavery in the Roman Empire was much different than in our day. It wasn't ethnicity. It was all about work. It was all about status. And so the translators that you know they snuck this word servant in the word is slave jesus literally became a slave now you might think why why would jesus do this leads us to another lofty doctrine called the trinity again unique to christianity history of the world basically people believed in many gods polytheism today we have three monolithic religions Christianity Islam and Judaism but only Christianity has this idea that we have one God one in essence manifest in three persons father son Holy Spirit now I know you all understand this you all know it even before you were a Christian you probably had a concept of this let's go through it real quick no one struggles with the idea that God is God or the father right Jesus, when he was asked by his disciples, how should we pray, said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. Revelation 4, John saw the throne of God. It was like a jasper stone. There were four living creatures, 24 elders. It's the same thing Isaiah saw in chapter 6. We get the idea of God, Father, all the way through the Old Testament. I think that's an easy one. Jesus as God is a little tricky. Hard to understand, the Jews don't understand it, Uh, Muslims don't understand it, but Jesus said, my father and I are one. Seven times Jesus said, I am, relating himself to what God told Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. When Philip said, just show us the father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Hebrew says he's the icon, the express image of the living God. Revelation 1, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means he's eternal. Only God is eternal. And then that Christmas verse, Isaiah, unto us a son is born, a child is given. Isaiah said, this is his name. The wonderful counselor, get this, the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace, And the smoking gun is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. The tabernacle of God came to man. Um, Jesus was God, all of man, all of God. The Holy Spirit is strange because we look at it as a force. The Holy Spirit is translated breath or wind, or pneuma, where we get pneumatic. And so we think it's a force, we think it's it, yet almost every time we see the Holy Spirit, it's spoken of as a person, as God. In John chapter 14, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, was speaking to his disciples about how he would leave them a comforter. And he said this, I will pray to the Father... And he will give you another helper, a paraclete, one that comes alongside, uh, who will abide forever, the spirit of truth. Now, look at the personal pronouns. The Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot know, because it neither has seen him nor knows him, but you know him. But he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Personal pronoun. Acts chapter 5, there's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a plot of land. They pledge a certain amount to the church. But they withheld back some of the proceeds. Peter comes to them and said, why have you done this and lied to the Holy Spirit? You know, you sold the land. Why you had the money? It was yours. You could do with it whatever you want. You don't have to give it to the church. But why did you make this pledge and keep some back? And this is what Peter says. You have not lied to men but you have lied to God. So he links the Holy Spirit as God. Genesis 1, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. Zechariah 4.6, not by might, not by power, but God says, by my spirit, says the Lord. The Old Testament, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1, Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is the plural of El God. In the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1:26, God said, let us make man in our image. And then you could look at Psalm 2, and of course, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, showed those men all the way through the Old Testament, his appearances in the Old Testament. So, so we have this one God in three. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to spend a little time here because people struggle. To me, this is the clearest, clearest observance. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. Matthew 3, verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit this for now, for thus it will fulfill all righteousness. Then he followed him, and when he had been baptized, Jesus came up, and immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father in heaven is speaking, the Holy Spirit is descending, and Jesus the Son is in the water. I can't give you a clear picture of the Trinity, the Godhead, the oneness of it. Now if you're out there saying, Pastor Bob, that sounds great, I really struggle with this, that's okay. There's a theological term for that, it's called the incomprehensibility of God. And what that means is God has given us enough revelation to understand who he is, but we'll never know everything about him, even for the ages to come. He's God. And these people who put acronyms together and theories and formulas and theological jargon because they figured out God, you know, listen, we only know so much. We only know enough to get by. God is vast. We are finite. He's the creator. We're the creation And we'll always be limited in some point of our understanding who he is. And yet there's those who would question the Trinity. And the millennial generation, they're full of questions. That's okay. You know, you can question whether Jesus was a Republican. You can question certain things about what you see, politics, Christianity, all those things. But we can't question the Trinity. We don't question the the virgin birth. We don't question, is Jesus coming again? Those doctrines have been given to us and have been alive for 2,000 years. You go in the math class, you don't prove algebra all over again. It's already been proven. So the trinity is there. Now, we have limited descriptions of it. Some people say it's like an egg. You have the shell, the yolk, the white. Well, that's limited because you do have three and you somehow have one. One. But the Trinity is greater than that. The Trinity is when you have one, you have all three. See, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the entire Godhead. Whereas if I have the yoke, I don't have the shell and the white. Same with water. Water, gas, and ice, three different. But I don't have the uniqueness of all three at one time. The closest we get is a human being. You and I are spirit, soul, and body. And the Bible says we are so intricately created that it's like joint and marrow, spirit and soul, you can't divide it. If you take the spirit out of the body, you die. We're so joined together. Now here's the payoff. Without the Trinity and without the incarnation, without Jesus in all humility becoming God, mankind would have never known what true love was. And when we talk about love, it's many things, right? I love tacos, I love my wife, I love the Phillies, you know, I love God, you know, it all runs together. But what is true love? True love is found in the Trinity. You see, most of the gods who ever existed were capricious and fickle. They never intervene with man. Even in the world's monotheistic religions, You never know where you stand with the gods. Muslims don't know if they're going to heaven or not. But in Christianity, we have the perfect demonstration of love. And we find it in Jesus' high priestly prayer, where in John chapter 17, he said, I do not pray for these alone, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world might know that you have sent me. Father, I desire they also, to whom you have given me, that where I am, they will be. And the glory which you have given me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world has not seen you. And Jesus goes on and on in this prayer. But you know what he's defining? He's defining the relationship of the Trinity before the world ever existed. Perfect oneness, subservient to one another, perfect love. The idea that God created us because he was lonely is blasphemy. There was perfect oneness within the Godhead that we'll never understand. Our minds are too finite to to conceive it. And yet if you want to know true love, it's in the Godhead, the love they had for one another. And then take it one step further, that love came to us when Jesus, who was all of God, said, I'll be subservient to the Father and I will become man and I will be in the likeness of men. And he hung on a cross and he laid down his life that you and I would live. That is perfect love. And that's why John would write, no one has ever seen this kind of love that a man would lay his life down for a friend. And John in 1 John writes over and over again, Now, this, by, by this we know love, that he became the propitiation for us, that when we, you know, we didn't first love him, he loved us. And that's why forever and ever our joy, which is indestructible, comes from the fact that God loves us. We are not abandoned. You see, the, 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 the paradox of the Trinity is this. On the cross, God said, my, you know, Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced on the cross what some people will experience. If you're a Christian, you'll never experience total abandonment. The Father turned away. Why? Because in the day that you sin, you'll surely die. And just as he turned away from Adam and Eve, he turned away from the Son. And you and I will never know abandonment. And we'll always know love. And Jesus said this happened from the foundation of the world. Paul said it is the source of true love and true joy, the oneness of the Trinity. It's where we get this indestructible Joy, And this is the mind Christians need to have. This is the way we need to think. This is how we need to approach life. Because if we look at what Jesus has done, if we look at the Trinity, we could say, oh my gosh, this is the way I can approach life. I don't need my rights all the time. I don't need my way. I can descend into greatness. Now Paul was writing the Philippians and he said, you'll fulfill my joy by being like-minded, by loving one another. He wanted this church to thrive, and he uses the incarnation and the mind of Christ to say, here's how you guys can succeed. And he goes through a list of what I would call joy killers. I'll spend a couple minutes on this. I used to play Miss Pac-Man in college. You know that little thing that goes around eating the dots, right? So there are things in our life that are eating in our joy. Real quick, Paul goes through it. Verse 2, he says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Disunity within the church is a terrible thing. But when there's unity, incredible things happen. And I think we have a high level of unity here. We don't all agree. And I know you guys go home and say, I wonder why Pastor Bob does this, and why did he make that decision? But generally, I think we're all going in one direction. That's a beautiful thing. Disunity is when, when someone has to be right. They have to have their own way. Paul said in verse 3, there's another joy killer. It's called selfish ambition. Now, ambition scares me to death because it, it can mask itself as passion. Passion's what we're looking for. Selfish ambition. Do you ever see someone driven? Now, at times, we all work hard. We all work long. We all work in businesses where there's seasons of busyness. But you ever see someone who's driven, where they're always busy, they never turn the clock off? To me, somewhere in there, there's an emptiness. There's something driving them. They're filling some void, some form of acceptance, some insecurity. Paul said... That's a joy stealer. And then he mentions in verse three, self-interest. Oh, I want to lead this ministry because we need this ministry. And then you find out, well, it was for their self-interest and it was because they had a need to be needed. Paul said, that'll kill you. Lisa Meredith, I was in her office this week. She had a poster on the wall. It said, don't be so Sunday minded that you're no Monday good. And what that means is for people that do church, don't think it's all about Sunday. Don't think it's all about what we're doing today. Think about the people who have to go to work Monday. How can we empower them? How can we enrich them? How can we serve them and not ourselves? That's the question we always have to be asking. How can I serve somebody else instead of serving myself? Let this mind be in you, the mind of Christ. Jesus became a bond slave. 750 times the Bible talks about a slave. When you said Jesus was Lord, the word kurios in Greek means master. If you made Jesus the master, you are the slave. And that cuts against everything we know as Americans, Right? You know, sometimes we don't believe the Bible, we believe Mel Gibson. Freedom, right? We're the Marlboro man. We're we're the freedom riders. No one's going to tell me to do. I'm the captain of my own ship. And yet Christianity is all about finding the right master. And everyone wants a master. Everyone's mastered by something. LeBron James, the greatest basketball player, you know, all the analysts say, look, he wants to be coached. Kids want to be parented. And the joy of Christianity is we found the right master. Freedom. We think we can do what we want, we can get what we want. And again, we look at that list and we look at the people who have achieved and we think, oh my gosh, if we could only live their lives only to read what they have to say at the end. Muhammad Ali, who would have been on the top of that list at one point, was at his Deer Park Ranch, which was an all decay. Mildewed tongues of insulation poked through the gaps in the ceiling, flaking cankers pocked the painted walls, on the floor lay, laying scraps of carpet. He was clothed in black, black street shoes, black shorts, black pants, black short-sleeved shirt. He threw a punch, and in the small town's abandoned boxing gym, the rusting chain between the heavy bag and the ceiling rocked and creaked. Slowly at first, his feet began to dance around the bag. His left hand flicked a pair of jabs, then a right cross, then a left hook. He he recalled the ritual of beating others and, you know, uh, being a butterfly and like a bee. The dance quickened. Black sunglasses flew from his pocket as he gathered speed. Black shirt tail flapped free. Black heavy bag rocked and creaked. Black street clothes scuffed faster and faster across. Moldering tiles. Yes, Lord, champ still floats. Champ can still sing. He whirled, jabbed, fainted. Let his feet fly into a shuffle. How's that for a sick man, he quoted. He did it for a second three-minute round, then a third. Time, I shouted at the end of each one. As the second hand swept past the twelve on the wristwatch he had handed to me. And then gradually his shoulders began to slump, his hands to drop. The tap and thud of leather... Soles and leather gloves began to miss a quarter beat, half beat hole. Ollie stopped, and he sucked air, and he said the dance was over. He entered the long driveway of his farm, parked and left the car. He led me into a barn, and on the floor, leaning against the walls, were paintings and photographs of him and his prime, eyes keen, arms thrust in triumph, surrounded by the cluster of people he took around the world with him. He looked closer and noticed it, and across his face, every picture, streaks of bird dung. He glanced up toward the pigeons in the rafters. No malice, no emotion at all flickered in his eyes. Silently, one by one, he turned to the pictures on the wall. And outside, he stood motionless and moved his eyes across his farm. He spoke from his throat, not moving his lips. I asked him to repeat it. He said, I had the world and it wasn't nothing, and he poised, and he pointed, and he said, look at it all now. And contrast that with Paul in a prison, he said, if I live, it's Christ, and if I die, it's gain. Money's a cruel master. You'll never have enough. Drugs, a cruel master. Fame, a cruel master. Jesus is the right master, and we found him. And we love him. And from him comes the fullness of joy. He's the one who said he laid down his life for us. He saved the best for last. Every hair on our head is numbered. And when I read this chapter, I think, Lord, I want to walk in the authority that you've given me. But I want to walk in humility. I want to look at Jesus. I want to be a lion and a lamb. I want to descend into greatness. And I want to be like my master and one day here, well down, thou good and faithful servant. If you don't know Christ this morning, it says here that God has exalted him. And one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. I hope you do it out on the lawn. I hope you do it here, not then. Because every tongue is going to confess. But do it now and you'll live. Do it now and you'll know this joy. Let's stand. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back.